0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: So I want to ship a dead body from China, but it's hard to find a white body in China, especially fat like Eric. So I buy a fat white cadaver from Cincinnati Medical School, but to ship it to China, then switch a box, then ship back, it's a way too much money.
0: That is none other than comedian Jimmy O. Yang playing the infamous Jin Yang on HBO's Emmy-nominated series Silicon Valley, which is loved the country over every Sunday night. Yang has been on Colbert. He's been featured in Vanity Fair, and he's going to be coming again to the big screen later this summer. And you must read his new book, How to American. He's ours, so do stay with us. This week's episode is sponsored by our friends at Elwood Thompson's. You're going to hear me say it yet again because I believe in them, the best market in Virginia. It's also been rated the best market by various contests and reader surveys online. Check them out at elwoodthompsons.com. At the top of Carrytown in the mothership and, of course, at the new Institute for Contemporary Arts where Elwood's has a juice and coffee bar and light snacks, they are so quintessentially Richmond. Love them. You will too. Visit them at the top of Carrytown. Joining us from NPR Los Angeles is none other than Jimmy O Yang, actor, stand-up comedian, and writer, best known for the portrayal of Jin Yang on HBO's Emmy-nominated series Silicon Valley. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me. You're also going to see Jimmy Yang in this summer's anticipated Crazy Rich Asians. And you must pick up his new book, How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. It had me in stitches, and I had to figure out a way to get you on my show. So I'm grateful for having you, sir. Hey, thank you. Thank you so
1: much for enjoying the book. And uh, I'm glad you liked it.
0: Well, I have to ask you, you're in you're in Los Angeles right now, and you're uh-huh. a creature of Southern California, but when you do make it up to the Bay Area, what is that like? Because you kind of become this icon through, I think, what am I, on the fourth or fifth <laughs> season of Silicon Valley now?
1: Fifth season now. It's been kind of crazy. And every season I go up there, I get recognized a little more often. I think San Francisco, it's uh, such a metropolitan city. If you're just walking down the streets, there's so many people walking down the street, you can kind of not get recognized right uh which is great but then if i'm ever visiting like facebook google or having a meeting at like something like like even lyft or dropbox uh it just it's just like a crowd of people looking at me like i'm some kind of zoo animal do you <laughs> do you do stand-up <laughs> shows in the bay i mean what if you were just show up at palo alto I, I did do some stand-up shows, and, and really, at the end of the day, I'm super blessed. That is my best market, you know, because it's a heavy Asian population, and it's a lot of Silicon Valley people. So I just sold out a show at the San Jose Improv. That was awesome, and I'm going back to San Francisco at the NMA uh, to do some shows.
0: I got to ask you, because you were on several times with, now, one of the, she should get a limited cast role on Silicon Valley is Emily Chang from Bloomberg West. Um, <laughs> that, man, you know, you, you you look for you on YouTube and it has your your kind of, you know, gag experience on uh-huh. Bloomberg West, and that
1: kind of stamps you as an icon of Silicon Valley. Is that what it is? I didn't know that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that was really cool because that turned out to be one of my favorite scenes, uh, my interview, Jing Yang's interview on Bloomberg. And that wasn't on the show. That was like uh, extra um, clips that we did for the Internet. Um, for the fans and, and they got a great response so how did I'm you keep a straight
0: that. face how did she keep a straight face in doing this I mean she had to play <laughs> along like you know seafood you got a VC valuation and everything you turn to the camera in very gangster fashion in very you know
1: I, I'm rich <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time we don't keep a straight face um, sometimes my goal is to just make like uh, my castmates laugh Thomas breaks sometimes and and I like doing that I know it, it doesn't actually help the efficiency of filming the show but I we know We've done something right when the other person start like chuckling a little. We might have to retake the take, but uh, you, you know we got something there.
0: So tell me, how many years have you been in the United States? I mean, I recommend everybody pick up the book How to American because you have a very unusual immigrant upbringing here, where it, it upset your parents and that you wanted to be a comedian and not a straightlaced, you know, banker or doctor or engineer. I very much am familiar with the experience as a as a. Journalist Iranian-American. I mean to my parents. Mm. I'm all but dead,
1: right? So uh, <laughs> <laughs> But tell me when you came here exactly Yeah, so I came here when I was 13 from Hong Kong and now I'm 30 So I've been here for 17 years now uh, in a way people ask me, you know, where did you 20, go? 27, um,
0: 27 years you've been here. Oh, no, you're 30. Oh, no, no. oh
1: I thought you're 40 man. You're so young I'm <laughs> So you came here. You I'll be th- a very young looking 40. So
0: you came here at the turn of the century.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly, man. Yeah, so uh, it was it, it was right when Hong Kong was given back to China, uh, and there was a lot of fear. I think that's partly the reason why you know my family wanted to move here, but mainly for me and my brothers' education. You know, and uh, to much of their disappointment. First of all, I didn't get into neither UCLA or USC, uh, and I went to UCSD, um, and I got an economics major, but obviously I never used it. <laughs> Well, you know,
0: it's intensely difficult to get into UCLA or Berkeley as a Chinese person. I know this is an Iranian person as well, mm-hmm. but they, you know, they have this they have such a, an abundance of qualified Californians applying and they have to be disciplined about it. But when did you realize that this this wasn't for you and you almost had to risk disappointing your dad and kind of go off on your own?
1: It was when I had an internship at Smith Barney that my dad hooked me up with, which is like every Asian parent's dream for your kids to work at like Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, or like Goldman Sachs, right? So he was super happy, but then I was sitting behind that desk like in my internship, just want to kill myself. It was the worst. Like, I know the, the feeling. I was, a, was, I, was like, a, okay. I was a spreadsheet
0: yeah. monkey at Goldman Sachs. I know the feeling.
1: Oh, yeah. So, you know, the first couple of months was okay, but then it got to when you, the routine set and you just... Start hating on everyone that got more money than you uh, looking at their mutual funds, you know, and uh, I'm like I was having almost having a panic attack having to sit there from like nine to five every day And I saw my next 40 years my life flash in front of me And to me that was the most scary thing like going to do my first open mic Wasn't nearly as scary as the thought of sitting at this desk for 40 years
0: dying a slow death on Wall Street Exactly, and so your big break was when?
1: gotta think silicon valley um before that literally between season one and two of silicon valley i was driving uber because season one i only had like five words you know total and wait I was wait, in three
0: wait. you were literally an uber driver between seasons one and two of silicon
1: could you repeat that? yeah yes but <laughs> <laughs> nobody recognized me then you know <laughs> i only had five words on the show uh and um I wasn't a serious regular, so I was getting paid like, you know, SAG after minimum. I was just happy to be on a show as a recurring character. I was pay- getting paid, I don't know, like 900 bucks a day or something like that. Luckily, um, I can stop driving the Uber now. And don't get me wrong. I'm all about like animal rights. I'm all about like free-range animal. But I still live in a one-bedroom apartment with two roommates. <laughs> I'm not even a free-range human being, okay? I don't need to eat a chicken to live better than I did. The chickens on 20 acres in Napa, I'm in 200 square foot in Pacoima. As a comedian growing up, you you get uh, how crappy life is at some point, you know. But you're enjoying it. You're still doing open mics, you're doing comedy. All you care about is stage time. That's like your crack you know, but then so many comics I know shared a bedroom. Like I shared a one bedroom apartment in little Armenia here in uh, East Hollywood little uh, Armenia. with two roommates. So we have three people living in one bedroom apartment. We got one guy living in my closet. The other guy had a girlfriend, you know, it, it was just a whole mess. But looking back, that was still one of the, like the most fun times in my career. You know, I loved reading something about your experience
0: in uh, high school uh, with this Ragtag group of non-Chinese people, Iranians, right? There was one person who was from Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> how you made deals with other people to get uh, discount lunch tickets. Uh, I just want to read okay. a little bit uh, of the book for everybody. I met my first non-Chinese friend in Beverly Hills High during the second semester of freshman year. Jeremy was a Persian kid on the football team, but he didn't act particularly Persian or particularly like a football jock. We hit it off making fun of the other kids in our six-period computer class. Jeremy and his friends had a table on the top floor next to the cafeteria, and I started to sneak away from the Chinese culture club to hang out with them. They were the most diverse group of dudes I've seen since the We Are the World music video. (laughs) <laughs> Jeremy and his cousin Phil were Persians who were into normal American teenager stuff like Star Wars, Madden, and the Justice League. Zaki Hashem was an honor student from Bangladesh. Bo Kim was a quiet Korean immigrant. Chris O'Connor, a tall, lanky, half-white Native American dude who wore T-shirts three sizes too big. And Derek Hua was an ABC, American-born Chinese, whose parents were also from Shanghai, and he spoke Shanghaiese. When a Shanghaïs person finds another Shanghaïs in America, it's like finding a best friend who has the same birthday and who also happens to be a long-lost cousin. Um, You talk in this book about how much you long to be a, quote, normal American kid. I mean, your your dad uh, was a great cook. He would send you off with smelly Chinese food. Uh, you, you, (sighs) You know, the first time you had a football thrown at you, you fell on the ground and everything. I remember that struggle from elementary school. But for you to come here as kind of an adolescent is a whole other kind of torture.
1: Yeah, I think 13 is a hard age for anyone, but I to learn a new language, a new culture, make new friends, learn a new sport, you know? Um, and, and I think every kid, they just want to be normal, so they don't get made fun of, they don't stand out. Um, and I tried very hard to be American, as American I could be for, I don't know, the past 17 years. And, um, you know, it's it, it's a process. It's, first of all, you just start copying things on the surface, you know, you see kids playing football, so you go watch the F- Super Bowl. You see kids listening to hip-hop and sagging their pants, so, you know, you you, you watch Rap City on BET. That's how I learned my English.
0: So tell know? me your English that you learned from BET. I think I saw this on Arsenio or something.
1: That's <laughs> a lot of slangs and stuff, right? I mean, first of all, I didn't even know what what's up meant. That's not really a word they teach you back in Hong Kong, you know, or phrase. And then everything else, like you learned, like, big pimping. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew it was an awesome music video. It was like every boy's dream, you know, to be big pimping or like the thong song. (laughs) I didn't know what a thong was, but I learned it from that video, you know. So everything that and in between, you know, country grammar, everything Nelly was talking about. (laughs) That's how I got acclimated. Um, uh, with my English, and also BET Comic View. That was a big influence for me. Do you remember one, com- com- really...
0: one comedian nah. in particular who influenced
1: you on BET? Oh, there's so many. I loved all the hosts. All the hosts were great. Bruce Bruce, J. Anthony Brown, Ricky Smiley. I mean, it, it was so many different amazing comics because every comic did like 5, 10 minutes on there. And I just you just learn a lot, not only the language, but the culture from these comics. You know, when they talk about, uh, I remember one, one comedian was talking about uh, he had a bad transmission in his car and y'all know that black people all have black uh, uh all have bad transmission in their cars and the crowd like clapped and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know that. I didn't know black people had bad transmissions and then they were like, white people do crazy things like bungee jump in and like, you know, uh, skydiving. I didn't know that. You know, growing up, <laughs> all I knew was Chinese people. So seeing all that, it's like, it's like getting like an insider look of how uh, certain parts of America view the other parts, and and how people, you know, um, looked at each other, and almost learned about I learned about the stereotypes, you know, by watching that show. So I want to get
0: to the first season of Silicon Valley, and you were a revelation mm-hmm. for me, as was. Um, you know, T.J. Miller, who may or may not be on the show anymore, he's, he's – I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but he's stuck in an opium den in, in uh, yeah. Tibet or maybe comes back, maybe doesn't come back. But as you described in the book, there is this kind of Chinese clown humor thing going on where there's a straight guy and a clown or like a putz and they make fun of each other. And you guys had this dynamic where you were always trying to one-up each other and scam one another. Or, yeah. um, th- you know, he was very much, y- y- you know, you cut your teeth on on TJ. And similarly, you, you know, you imagine TJ from the first season like Jin Yang, you know, he's always yeah. trying to rein you in. Or I remember that. Was that that first scene of you gutting a fish in the kitchen or burning trash? Talk to me about kind of bringing that discipline, which you described in the book, that Chinese humor technique to. Yeah. So
1: I don't know if I said Chinese clown. I think it was more like Lauren Hardy with us too. you know, this big buffoonish guy and this small, innocent guy who's, and, and they always either try to one-up each other or like, like bump heads with each other. But deep down, there's like a brotherly love, you know, and I think that's why people love watching these two. Um, and yeah, I just really, playing, playing Jing Yang is like playing myself when I first came to this country, you know? I had an accent. I was like the foreign kid that didn't understand much. So it came pretty naturally to me. And um, I grow like growing up. I watched a lot of Stephen Chow in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and he's so amazing. Like you know, uh, a lot of people know him for kung fu, Hustle, Shaolin Soccer. But before that, he had a ton of Hong Kong movies, and he is like that perfect deadpan humor guy. And to me, that was amazing. That's what I grew up watching. So a lot of Jing Yang kind of came from that. And of course, Mike Judge helped mold the whole character. He's very much into the that dead- uh, the deadpan kind of underplayed tone of satire. So it just, you know, um as as me and TJ's character's relationship developed, um I think it was great. Like one season it was him yelling at me and the next season it's me getting my revenge, you know, and uh, everything is kind of earned. Uh even though Jingyang becomes kind of like a big asshole in a way. Uh it's 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 okay, because Ehrlich was the one that's being really mean to him before that. Ehrlich
0: Bachman. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Jimmy O. Yang. You know him and love him as Jin Yang on HBO's Silicon Valley, which is a must-see TV every Sunday night and on DVR. Uh, his book, which dropped last month, is How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. <laughs> it's a great title, and it was Thanks. a very quick read, and I loved it. And I just know a lot as an immigrant myself that I, I— shared with this book. I have some difficult questions that I have to get to. Let me let me throw out like a loaded one at the very top right here. Sure. When I laugh at what you do on Silicon Valley, should I feel Mm -hmm. any pang of guilt about laughing? At that. Well, I, I guess mean, do it's you, it's do it's you it's feel it's like you're <laughs> authentically representing what Jimmy O Yang wants to do? Do you worry about the caricature about about I mean, I'm sure you hear this elsewhere that Jin Yang might become a stereotype of like the crafty Asian guy always plotting behind the scenes?
1: Sure, uh, or the accent or whatever. Like for, for me it's always I just try to play it as authentically as possible. The accent is from my mom and from my uncles back in Shanghai. You know, and a lot of these experiences, uh, it's similar to mine when I first came to this country. So I get it. Um, I think the stereotype and maybe it's, it's not a caricature. He's, he's more or less in a way, almost very anti-type. Like he's, he's not the nicest person. Right. But so he's, he's kind of a, a butthole, but really it's, it's the opposite of what you think an Asian nerd would be. So I really like doing that. Um, and, and at the end of the day, um, I think what's more important is the representation uh, of Asians as a whole. So the representation shouldn't only fall on Jin Yang's lap. But sadly, a lot of it does because he's one of the few um, Asian series regular characters on TV. But I just hope to see more and more Asian characters and a whole spectrum of them. You know, like, for example, in Crazy Rich Asians, this movie that's about to come out, you see a whole spectrum of Asian people. You got like the really good looking, romantic Asian people. You got the funny, crazy Asian people. And you got the ridiculous, you got whatever, you know? So I think that's what's more important to see it as a spectrum instead of putting all the weight in this one character. And for me, portraying Jing Yang is just portraying a real person that exists somewhere. You know, I never try to play as a caricature or anything like that. And most of the stuff is based on my own experience.
0: Is there any part of you that wishes maybe you were one of the programmers alongside you know Dinesh and Gilfoyle and and Richard? It seems like you're on the periphery. You're always. I mean, you kind of accidentally ended up in the incubator that that Erlich Bachman had, which was kind of like a an overrated accidental place to begin with. And you were always trying to get free rent, or you were exchanging documents with him and saying, "No, you cannot legally evict me." It was a bit of a sideshow. And without spoiling it for anyone, you could intimately get involved with it now that Ehrlich is out of the picture and that you you have maybe a pass-through stake in in Pied Piper. Um, But you're still kind of that... You're you're a person who kind of weaves in and out. Was that by design Mm -hmm. in the show? Did you craft it that way?
1: I think it started that way. Jing Yang was such a small character, and they liked me enough to keep bringing me back. And the character grew more and more throughout the season. So every season when I read the script, I get really happy as the character grows, you know. And uh, this year, uh, season five, he becomes... um, more involved in the boys' business, you know. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and a part of me kind of really likes being that side guy that just comes in because I don't have to ha, have to carry like too much of the plot. I can just come in and be funny, right? So it's kind of cool. You just come off the bench and you hit a couple three pointers, and and I kind of like that. Um, and to, like I don't I don't have to work as much as like say Thomas or something. But I get to just come in and deliver the funny, which is great. Now with the part, uh as the part expands, hopefully maybe even next season, I become more involved in the um and their startup or whatever it might be. We don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know. Uh that's up to the writers. And uh, I'm just happy to be, you know, a growing part of the show. You got
0: a great imprimatur. and I don't know at what threshold, you know, you, you make your dad proud ultimately, but I saw you in Vanity Fair. It said Jimmy O'Yang is ready to be the main a-hole of Silicon Valley. I mean, as the comic powerhouse steps up to take T.J. Miller's place, he discusses his new book, his upcoming role in the rom-com, Crazy rotations, and why he actually likes playing characters with thick accents. And in this essay, you said, you know, you kind of love it because me, myself, I don't think I'm an a-hole in real life. Something about me playing an a-hole is very funny because I look very small and nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: true. It's deceiving. You know, um, I don't know when my parents will be proud. Uh, they are kind of, I guess, deep down proud a little bit, you know, foreign parents never really tell you, but I don't think Asian people read Vanity Fair. I need to get on some Chinese newspaper. What did that,
0: what do Chinese Americans say about you when they approach you or they write you or see you at comedy shows?
1: It's funny. Some, most of them are very nice. They're very, very nice. And, uh, some of them even say like, Hey, thank you. Thank you for like representing Asian people on TV. And I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. But that's... (laughs) At the end of the day, that's not really a choice, you know. I didn't wake up and choose to represent Asian people. I couldn't represent Nigerians <laughs> if I wanted to, yeah. you know. But it, it's great, I guess, to be representing Asian people. Um, but I don't. I don't try to put that on my shoulder. I just try to be the best actor that I could be, you know,
0: you know, in the book and some of the stuff I read about, you said, when you're winning, when your minimum wage job at the comedy palace, didn't pay the bills, you went from DJing at a strip club, quote, I was pairing R and B songs with strippers, like a sommelier at Spago, suggesting which red goes best with beef people <laughs> to selling this used cars, to driving for Uber. But eventually you achieved the American dream in landing on a, uh, Silicon Valley. And in 2016, you became a citizen. I have to ask you, at this point that you have recognition, are you getting things like the Thomas Middle Ditch Verizon type offers? Are you getting advertising, marketing offers, Instagram offers? I mean, what is it like to go from being a bit player slash Uber driver on seasons one and Uh two to kind of a a uh, full-fledged, I'll call you an A-lister at this point in Hollywood. I don't think so, (laughs) but thank you. Um, Actually, you're not an A-lister. You're coming on my show. You're slumming it, so you must be at least a (laughs) C-plus- (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I don't know everything's been crazy and uh, I, I'm not used to like even when I go out to a bar in like LA like a ton of people want to come take pictures and stuff I'm not used to that you know like just a few years ago like you said I was driving Uber and it's it's not something i used to I think deep down there's still a part of me that's the same kid when I was 13 years old just trying to fit in and anytime I've try to go buy like a nice shirt or something uh, I can hear like my mom in the back of my head yelling at me and just be like, "Hey, that's that's too expensive. I can buy you five in China for the same price, you know." So it's it's always that that guilt and and that same kid. Deep down, I think you're always the same person. Hopefully, um, unless unless when you get famous, you become an a hole, and that's that's not necessarily healthy. I would like to think I'm not that and uh, but it's almost almost too the other way for me, like I almost have like the imposter syndrome, like I feel like I don't belong um but you know i'm I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying all of it.
0: Does it make money for you doing stand up now? It's not a loss leader. I mean, you're not getting sag minimum anymore on on uh h b o you've clearly starred in in big movies um mm. you know, you've been out there taking huge role i mean you you were opposite Mark Wahlberg in Patriots Day after all i mean th- these are not bit roles anymore. you're not a you know, kind of that guy to call if you have no one else,
1: right? Yeah, and um, no, stand up is great. I'm, I'm finding like after I wrote this book, I'm able to like, ex- like um, extract some of the material from the book to do stand up with, and it's really things that I want to talk about and I want people to hear. So it's been great. I'm finding the motivation again, and yeah, money wise is fine. It's a lot of travel. I would rather not do that, but there's still nothing like stand up. Like doing a movie, doing a show, that's all great. But doing stand-up it's like an instant reward with the audience laughter and then the fans afterwards talking to you. It's just nothing better than that. So I'm still on a tour. And um, yeah, you guys can go to jimmycomedy.com. That's got my tour dates and such.
0: Take me back to your first standup experience. The terror, the exhilaration, the, such a departure from what your dad and mom wanted you doing, such an act of rebellion. I mean, I told you we had Maz Jobrani on this show, and mm-hmm. I think he was a Ph.D. At, at Berkeley or something, and he just dropped mm. it at some point and did stand up, and and it was an embarrassment to his parents. But you have to seek out. It's a, you're at that fork in the road. Well, I can be sitting here putting pitch books and spreadsheets together and being on my you know, third marriage by the time I'm, I'm you know 40 years at Solomon Smith Barney, or I could be doing something that I'm half-passionate about. So what was that first time like?
1: I always say that to, in order to do stand-up, you need a certain amount of desperation. And typing in to Google local open mics is one step away from typing in Google what's the best way to kill myself, you know? So you, you, you do need to kind of hit a rock bottom in your life. Whereas it's, you just got divorced, you got your third DUI, or you realize you're just doing this job that you hate. Or for me, a massive panic coming out of college, not knowing what to do and hating everything that I studied. So I, I found this comedy club called the Haha ha Comedy Club in North Hollywood. Um, and they have an open mic every night before their real show. And I have to pay $5 for five minutes of stage time. But as funny or crappy as that sounds, that was still better than any other choice in my life. Like, I wasn't that funny at first. I don't think anybody is, right? And, but it was just such a great experience. Like, I I saw this was a whole new world that I'm getting into. I'm making new friends. And if I get good at this, this could be possibly, you know, a career. So that was very liberating to just know that. There's something out there that's possible and that exists, and I don't have to be stuck behind a desk for the next 40 years. Because to me, like I said, like the thought of doing something I hate for 40 years is way scarier to me than like taking a leap and jumping into the unknown, you know? Well, so many
0: people end up doing it for 10 or 15 years and then burning out, and then you could be having this epiphany by the time you're 38, but you know, you took the pain up front as opposed to amortizing it. How did you prepare for that show? Was it just in front of the mirror? Did you go back and pick up old VHS tapes of,
1: of BET? What did you, what did you do? <laughs> I, um, I had nothing to lose at that point, really. And I was just hoping to just go outside of the house and that was already a victory. So when you don't have anything to lose, you know, you're pretty comfortable out there. I learned most of my English by watching BET Rap City. Yeah. Big Tig in basement, Freestyle Friday. There's nothing more American than Snoop Dogg, you know? And I didn't know any better. I just thought that's how everybody talked. So I went up to the lunch lady the next day. I'm like, hey, what it do, shawty? Yeah. <laughs> Holla at me some of that waffle fries, what's up? So I never really had that stage fear in that sense. But, um, and I just wrote down like, stupid materials that I either has heard on BET before and I did my own remix of it or just stupid masturbation jokes. I think that's all hacky stuff that new comics do, right? You're just trying to survive and get that chuckle. And then afterwards, people were like giving me taglines for masturbation jokes as if this was like a real art form and I was like, oh my god, this is great. Like people were actually talking about this like sports science or like real like biochemistry or something and and breaking it down play by play, and I just found that so cool, and this was like the group of people that I really, you know, felt like I belonged.
0: So how was that night? I mean, think back to that night. Can you time stamp it for me? What year was it?
1: Um, This was, I think, I'm, I was going into my fifth year of college, so I was around 21, 22, 2000... Would that be 2008 nine, 10 or years nine? ago,
0: right during the yeah. yeah. So how was that? How did it follow through to the next act? I mean, did you leave? Did you go home that night exhilarated? Were you uh, on balance? I did, did it take your panic away. Did it have a revelation like you know at that point in your life where you realize, okay, the hard part's done. I figured out what I want to do. I just have to figure out how to get there.
1: I saw a little light shining through when I got off that stage and I drove home that night. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm going to go on next comic standing and win this uh, or I'm going to be the next biggest comedian or anything like that. It was just this is a way out. Like instead of just playing video games at my dad's house, this is my way out. There is a world of people out there and this is a world that I like. Um, so it definitely opened up the door and gave me some hope. Um, and and I went back there like for I don't know, I, I paid five dollars for five minutes the next month or so before i went back to college
0: when did you get paid for the first time for going up on stage or even a free meal or something but that it
1: was the other way around you weren't paying to play i think it was when i finally got a job at the comedy palace in san diego it's a greek restaurant during the day and then called the greek palace and then at night uh it's called a comedy palace and i got a job working at a door there um i'll get i think minimum wage which is i don't know seven dollars an hour or something like that back then and did you at least in, get some Suzuki or pita out of this experience? I did. I, I, I got some free uh, euros and such. <laughs> it was nice. Uh, but so I guess that was my first payment. But also, you know, um, really, I wanted to work the not for the $7 an hour, but I wanted the stage time. That's the most important thing. That's the only way to get good and stand up. You know, in stand up, there's no you can't just go by yourself to a gym and shoot around. You know what I mean? You can't just go work out by yourself. You have to work out in front of an audience. So it was really important to get that stage time. And I got $7 and seven minutes of stage time at the Comedy Palace. And that's really how I got my chops, you know? Full disclosure, I'm
0: Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jimmy O. Yang, best known as Jin Yang on HBO's Silicon Valley, his new book is How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. Jimmy, I see that you were at Google um, at the end of March. It said authors at Google in Mountain View, California. Talk to me about that crowd. I mean, everybody at Google and Facebook watches Silicon Valley. I mean, what was that like?
1: Yeah, I did a Google talk over there. It was so fun. Um, the whole campus, it was standing room only. I don't know. We had like maybe... Th- I think the room only sat two hundred people, but we had like three, four hundred people there or something like that, something crazy, and everybody was just so stoked to, I guess, see see one of the characters, one of the actors from Silicon Valley, and um, also, you know, like I said, uh, the Bay Area just it's the equal amount of uh, engineers, Silicon Valley people that likes to show, and also Asian people, which uh, they find, you know, the book very relatable. Um, which is awesome, you know, every time somebody tells me, oh my God, my dad's exactly the same way. I thought I was crazy or he was crazy, but that just, you know, my dad. And that, you know, reading a book makes me feel a little better about that. So that's great. Um, the whole experience was awesome. And um, yeah, it was, it was just really fun, positive fanfare. I mean, this month has been a whirlwind
0: for you. I mean, it starts off in San Jose. You hit Philly for the Helium Comedy Club, Lincoln Hall in Chicago, Brooklyn, New York, Boston, Massachusetts, Riverside, California, Sacramento, San
1: Francisco. You are a man in demand now. It's kind of crazy. So much traveling. My dream right now is to fall into a coma for a couple of days and then, you know, get back up and do it again. Because I'm, I'm getting a little bit tired, but uh, it's so rewarding. This is all the stuff that's happening now. It's all the stuff that I wanted to happen 10 years ago. And I wish I was doing all these shows and people are actually coming out to see me. And now it's happening. So, you know, I got to take advantage of it. I got to... um make hay while the sun is shining, as they say.
0: Any plans to do this in China or, or in you know, Hong Kong?
1: I in thought about it. I was, actually, I was talking to my buddy Ruben Paul about it. Uh, he's an African-American comedian, but he made it in Hong Kong many times uh, as a stand-up, and uh, he's very popular over there. So there's a big expat market over there, Hong Kong, mainland China, even Singapore and stuff like that. But if I go there, I think I will want to try to ba- break that ceiling even and, and do it some of it in Mandarin, you know, and and to see how that goes. Uh, There'll be an endeavor for the future. It'll take a long time and effort. And uh, who knows, with all the government censorship, it might not even be a thing. So uh, we will see. But that is, I've thought about that.
0: You know, I want to get your thoughts on, um, you know, sobering up for the role that you played in Patriots Day opposite Mark Wahlberg. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, all fun and games there. And what that experience was like breaking through into, um, the big screen. I mean, you you were with Melissa McCarthy in the film Life of the Party. We talked about this summer's Crazy Rich Asians. How does that compare to the small screen experience with Mike Judge, where after all, you know, you were you were slumming it and you were still an Uber driver. Um, you already uh-huh. talked about the economics of of making a buck or two as an on stage comedian. What is it like on the big screen?
1: It, it's fun, and and I still get starstruck uh, when I'm hanging out with Melissa or like Mark or something like that. Um, I don't think that ever goes away. And maybe that's healthy. Um, but, you know, Silicon Valley is shot very much in a movie. It's a single camera shoot or, you know, two cameras. Uh, and it, it's shot like a movie. So um, that's like my training ground. You know, I never went to like a Juilliard acting school or whatever. I took acting classes. But really, Silicon Valley was my training. And uh, when I stepped in, uh, like um, onto the Patriots Day set, A Life of the Party, Crazy Rich Asian, it just... It's just another job at that point. How were you recruited for
0: Patriot's Day, the film, and to play a serious dramatic role?
1: Yeah, just like anything else, I I still have to audition quite a bit. And I auditioned, I think, three times for Patriot's Day. Um, It's based on real life character, based on a Chinese immigrant, you know, that was involved uh, in saving the day for the Boston Marathon bombing. Danny Mang, real American hero, man. He was held up at gunpoint kidnapped by the terrorist brothers and he ran out of the car at gunpoint and notified the police officers which led to the shootout in watertown uh and the apprehension of those two which uh, why when i when
0: i saw it i didn't understand how you kept a straight face how you can turn it on and off like if you see australian actors or nicole kidman can completely feign an american southern accent i mean how did you shift from being such a you know natural comedian and you were you were spawned out of the Comedian, comedian experience to something mm-hmm. as straight laced as this. Just you showed up for the tryout.
1: Uh, I showed up for tryout. I tried very hard. I did all the research I could on Danny. I bothered him in Boston every other day, and I was just being him, you know, for like three months or so. And uh, it was tough. It was a hard experience, you know, especially reenacting what happened at night when I got carjacked and kidnapped. And uh, it wasn't pleasant, <laughs> but it was very rewarding as an actor, as an artist, and also to pay homage to somebody like danny and and the whole event. Um, so I think it was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And um, in a way, you know, comedy acting is just dramatic acting, but you have to make it funny also. So now you just don't have to be funny. so there's a little it's it's it could be a, some could argue that it could be a little easier, you know, I think acting is acting you just got to play it real and you got to play it authentically
0: and you didn't use this experience to to act out to to ask out melissa Benoit, one of your co-characters
1: oh uh, supergirl yes supergirl um, how many people get to act with supergirl we actually we had, we never had a scene together we're in the same movie but well, you we never not see had her in the catering
0: together. truck or anything like that i mean you just you know kevin bacon Did was I? there i mean you took I a photo have... with kevin bacon you're now 1 degree of kevin bacon i mean this is a big deal david ortiz was in the movie
1: yeah, a lot of J.K. People, right? Simmons,
0: the Oscar-winning J.K. Simmons, John Goodman. I mean, this right. wasn't this wasn't kind of an amateur indie production. This was a big deal. This had a fifty million dollar budget.
1: Yeah, I, I think I I try to not think about it as a big deal whenever going in, especially when I'm working on a movie. You just want to treat it as you're here to work, and you're just an actor, you know. And the more I think about it, the more it's like, what am I doing here, you know? But the less you think about it, it's just like this is a job and I'm good at my job and I'm going to go do it and try to not get too starstruck. Uh, I, I usually I save the star starstruck uh, during like the media press conference later on and stuff. Uh, Michelle Monaghan is in that movie. I'm a huge fan of hers. And it just it's just awesome, you know. And um, I think the best thing about this business is, you know, um, the people that you're fans of could potentially be a fan of yours. And uh, I try to, I guess, approach it that way as if pretending I'm uh, on the same level as those people, Uh, whether I am or not, I don't know. But um, I think that's the only way to keep myself sane and not like, you know, get super starstruck when I'm acting with them.
0: Well, Jimmy, in a few minutes we have left, tell us about your uh, plans, kind of as the econ major, as a person who finally has the freedom to apply some business sensibility to a career. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is kind of out of left field, but I wonder when I talk to creatives, like, for example, when we had Maz Jobrani on the show, I said, here you are getting paid by Comedy Central or by Showtime ridiculous amounts to be on stage and have that special. But when you're trying to be in a feature film, you have to do an Indiegogo or Kickstarter campaign to get that Mm. supported. Um, What do you what do you say about the business model of being um, the funny guy in your case? For example, if you were really in demand. Could you record an hour-long program and and have fans out there pay to pay to play pay-per-view around the world as opposed to touring?
1: Yeah, I think it's just as important to have a good business sense uh, as a comedian, especially um, and to be then to be funny. I know so many people that's hilarious, been doing comedy for fifteen years, but they never made it nowhere because they didn't know how to approach it. You know, so um, for example, I think uh, my friend Joe Coy, he shot his own special and then sold it to Netflix. Now he's selling out everywhere, adding like 10 shows to like the Irvine Improv. And it's amazing. You know, sometimes you got to bet on yourself uh, when other people's not betting on you and putting it in the right outlet. So I think you, you, you need to know uh, where to put your effort um, and your time. I think that's the most important thing um, as you grow in this business. And, uh, You know, putting out products, putting out intellectual properties like, you know, a book, a stand-up special or a a script, a TV show. And I think that's what's important. A lot of people, you know, bless them. You know, they're very comfortable once they get on a TV show and they stop working, which is great. I wish I'm more that way so I can have more sleep. But uh, for me, it's always like I'm afraid like, you know. I'm gonna fall off the next day and not make another dime. So I'm always out there trying to create, and I really enjoy it. You know, like the process of writing a book, I'm writing a couple of scripts right now, and uh, hopefully turning the book into a TV show or a movie soon, and doing all that stand-up, like just creating stuff out of thin air. I think that's that's what gets us artists going, and uh, that's the most important thing. Like IP, the intellectual properties that you create, that is, that is your currency. We are gonna see How To
0: American in some sort of screen treatment.
1: Uh, I think so. I'm I'm working on it.
0: Well, because we've talked about this in many other episodes, this is no longer just about three or four media conglomerates. Netflix is massively acquisitive. Amazon is doing these things. Apple wants in the game. Facebook. I'm sure you hear it from people, but you resound generationally as the as the 30 year old and what people watch. On Sunday night. So you have leverage to kind of dictate your terms. Do you want to do a Netflix comedy special? Do you want to do you want to, you know, do something for one of the big networks like HBO or Showtime? Uh, is Comedy Central still as relevant as it used to be? And it's funny in that you were you cut your teeth on watching BET comedy.
1: Yeah, maybe I'll do a show on BET. Who knows? <laughs> um, it's just it's just wherever the wind takes me. And for me, I just got to keep creating and uh, wherever it goes, it goes. And it uh, could be a movie, too. Who knows? And uh, just, trying to, just trying to see what, what, what will hit next. And uh, I'm working hard to, to get it out there. Thank
0: you so much, Jimmy Yang. Jimmy O. Yang, I am so grateful that you have subordinated your career at this promising phase to come on my slummy show. Uh, I no, can't thank come you on enough. Man. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. My joy. Full disclosure: our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to NPR West in Los Angeles for hosting Mr. Jimmy O Yang. We are on NPR One. Love us and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com, Twitter at FullDRadio, Facebook.com/FullDRadio. Jimmy Yang, give us your website: JimmyComedy.com. A funny guy, and look for him Sunday nights on Silicon Valley on HBO. Like Jimmy, we are changing the world. Think of us as an Uber for thought leadership, visionaries for bootstrap deep dive deliverables that have VCs banging on our doors. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.